Thank you, Sid. It's good to see you all. I wish my kids believed that, <laughs> that I knew what I was talking about, right? Well, today we have the great opportunity to talk about stewardship. I was going to say for those of you who have been around for a while, it's November, Floyd's preaching, it must be stewardship. <laughs> and sure enough, you're right. So I have three passages of scripture today, and um, they all sort of tie together. I told Harry when he sat down from the prayer, thanks for preaching the sermon for me. Um, but I'll expand a little bit more uh, on what he said during the prayer. First of all, it struck me that we should think about all of what we're going to talk about today, which is predominantly discipleship and discipleship coming before stewardship. Um, it reminded me of Jesus when he went into the temple and stood up and read Isaiah 61, 1 to 3, which is called the year of the Lord's favor. And I'd like to read that first. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty for the captives, and release from darkness from the, for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be asked, or they will be called, oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And that passage refers, of course, Jesus, to Jesus. It was the prophecy that the Messiah was coming. But it also, because of who we are and whose we are, talks about us. And when we look out across the world, what do we see? Much to depress us. Suffering, confusion, conflict, war. I could go on. You know what it is. And yet, in all of that, we are called to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then in Matthew 6, 9, uh, 19 to 21, we know this passage well, most of us, I think. But it's pertinent. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And then our passage for our stewardship theme, 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. By the way, you're going to get a lot of scripture today, so hang on. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. We're going to parse that out. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers up a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, 
they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This first letter of Peter is addressed to persecuted Christians in Asia Minor. There were five regions of Asia Minor, and Christianity was beginning to take hold, and they were being severely persecuted. And the letter encourages them to emulate the suffering that Christ suffered when he went to the cross, and remembering that after his persecution and death, he was resurrected by the power of God and was led to eternal life and has promised us who believe in him that we will have eternal life. Now, Peter, you, you recall, was a fisherman when Jesus called him to come and be a disciple. And he was an interesting character. Even though he denied Christ three times, still Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to per Peter first. And as we know, Peter became the leader of the early church. In fact, in Catholicism, they believe that Peter was the first pope. And we know the story in Acts that talks about how Peter, um, James and John were his friends and disciples together, and James was killed by Herod, and then there was such an excitement among the people that were opposed to Christianity that he decided to capture, he, ha he already captured John, and he decided to capture Peter and put him in prison. And we know the story in Acts about how Peter, the angel, came to him and he was liberated from, from prison because he had God's work to do. But Peter was not um, a learned man, and yet Christ came to him after his resurrection and said, Peter, he called him Petros, which is Greek for the rock. And he said, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades cannot destroy it. Now, when I read that, I thought, that's pretty existential. <laughs> you know, what's going on in the world and how the church is almost uh, parenthetical in many ways to having an impact on what's happening in the world. And yet, with all of the things that are happening, the gates of Hades cannot destroy the church because Christ called Peter to leave. So Peter didn't, probably didn't know Greek, and yet this letter is written in Greek. But there's a lot of commentators that think it was written by someone else. It was dictated by someone to Peter. And the, the reason for that thought is the last verse in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, the last verse in that whole letter says, Peter reads, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, I have written this to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. So it appears that Peter dictated this letter because many scholars says this letter is the most, it's the best Greek in the New Testament, the best Greek writing in the New Testament. And so this has become our passage for our stewardship campaign, give and serve without reserve. But before we delve into the passage, a couple other things. Before we focus on stewardship, I think we need to recognize that discipleship is a prerequisite to stewardship. 
No, as disciples of Christ, our calling is to give and serve without reserve. I'll say that many times, so if you take nothing else away from you today, take the way of Zim, give and serve without reserve. And as eco-Presbyterians, which we don't talk very much about, I don't think, we are covenant partners who believe that Christ is our Lord, that we were saved by his sacrifice that on the cross, we are assured of eternal life by his resurrection, that we are able to abide in his spirit and imitate his example. It's like, what would Jesus do? That old thing that went around for a while. And it's stated in the essential tenets of eco, which I'm sure you've all memorized at this point. It says, he is the sole path by which sinners become children of God. Jesus is the sole path, the sole path by which sinners become children of God. So given that, we look at this passage in the context that keeps faith in perspective. Without discipleship, there is no disciplined stewardship. And given that we are disciples of Christ, we are called to fulfill those expectations. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm prone to overestimate the benefit of things I want and underestimate their price. I've thought of a couple of analogies for that, but the best one happened this week. I was out to dinner with some friends, and they were buying, which is a good thing. Um, and it, it, it's a great restaurant, one that I love to go to, but it's not really fancy, but they have good food. And so they, all restaurants have new menus now, you know. And when I see a new menu, I leave, because I'm, I know that means they've increased the prices. <laughs> so... They had lamb chops, which you very seldom see on a, a menu here. But it said, this is like red flag warning, market price. <laughs> right? So I said, oh, okay, what's the market price? And they told me, and I ordered um, um, pasta. <laughs> so I called my wife, Sandy, because she's in North Carolina, uh, she'll be home in a week or so because we're having new windows put in our house there. And I said, you're not going to believe this. And so I said, guess what lamb chops cost? And she said, $35. I said, no. $45. No. $55. No. $65 for lamb chops. She said, those people are crazy. <laughs> And I assume, I saw this morning before I came over here, that nobody, nobody won the lottery last night. So I was hoping I wouldn't, wasn't going to have to preach the sermon. I was hoping one of you would win and we wouldn't have to worry about stewardship. <laughs> <laughs> but since it didn't happen, here you are stuck with me for another 15 or 20 minutes. So there's also a danger of, in the matter of discipleship, repeatedly, Jesus cooled the enthusiasm of eager candidates for her discipleship by urging them to consider the cost. And I think the most well-known story about that is the story of the rich young ruler. It's, a, it's in Matthew 19, if you want to read it again. It says, a man came to Jesus and asked, what good things must I do to get eternal life? 
And Jesus responded, keep the commandments. And the young man asked, which ones? And Jesus responded, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the rich young ruler said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And as we know, when the rich young man heard this, he turned away sadly and walked away because he was of great wealth. And we just read in Mark, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which I hope many of you who read, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, who was a martyr and a theologian and a preacher in Germany during uh, the re regime of Hitler. Uh, in that book, he wrote, earthly gifts are given to be used, not to be collected. Now, that's not part of our culture, I don't think. He goes on to say, and this harkens back to when the Israelites were in the desert, every morning there would be manna on the ground for them to eat. And they ate the manna. But if they tried to store it, guess what happened? It spoiled immediately. So it's use it or lose it is, is kind of what happens there. And so this is what Bonhoeffer wrote. The disciple must receive his portion from God every day. If he stores it up as a permanent possession, he spoils not only the gift, but himself as well. For he sets his heart on accumulated wealth and makes it a barrier between himself and God. Where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation, and our God. Hoarding is idolatry. Hoarding is idolatry. And this is clearly reinforced in 1 Timothy, a passage many of us know, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, I love this translation, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Think about that, wandering from the faith and piercing yourself with many griefs. So in this context of sacrificial stewardship, we can only, it can only happen if we understand the cost of discipleship. So given that, we study this brief passage in Peter's letter. And from here on, I'm going to do it by the verse. So if you've got your Bibles and want to follow along, that's great. Beginning with verse 7 of, of chapter 4. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now, Peter and most of his followers believed and expected that Jesus was coming back soon. He had clearly told them many times that he was coming soon. He says, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Sid and I were talking about this a little bit the other day. And every time somebody asks Jesus, when are you coming back, he won't tell them. He doesn't give them a definitive answer. 
You know, our expectation is, if I ask you a question, give me a straight answer. But that doesn't happen. And so they were expecting him to come back soon. So this passage, this, this verse, where he says, the end of all things is near, they believe that. And if you read all of Matthew 24, and Sid's preaching on Matthew 25 next week, so you get double dose, just do 24 and 25 together and you'll be ready. But it says you must be ready for the Son of Man's coming at an hour you don't expect. And that is a powerful, I gotta use this word because I love it, it's a powerful eschatological foretelling of the future. I love the word eschatology. Do we have time for me to tell you a story? Yeah, we do. When I first got into, I work in long-term care most of my career, and my first job was uh, an administrator in a psychiatric hospital in Northern California, and I went for a financial review with the CFO of the company. At the time, the company was relatively small. And we were in a meeting, and he said, what's your EBITDARM? And I said, what? What is your EBITDARM? Do you all know what EBITDARM is? Some of you do. It's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, rent, and management fee. <laughs> I said, I don't know. And he said, well, you've got to know that. And I said to him, what's eschatology? <laughs> he said, I don't know. I said, you need to know that. <laughs> that really happened. I'm not making that up. That was, and I was just a young whippersnapper. It, I'm, I, I stayed with that company for 10 years, so it didn't, it didn't do me in. But in Psalm 30, 136, David writes, I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. This repetition of the emphasis of more than watchmen wait and the fact that he repeats that twice tells how forceful it is to be always waiting for the Lord. Because we don't know, first of all, we don't know when we're gonna, how long we're going to be here and we don't know when he's coming. But it doesn't make any difference, really. We should expect he's going to come every day. Because if we pass away before he comes, he reminded us in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us this day our daily bread. And, you know, he'll come and raise the quick, which are the living, and the dead. So eschatology is really important. And when you think about stewardship and what you're giving and what you have, what is more important, what you're giving or what you have? And how do you define that? And, though, and then he ends his first verse by saying, so that you may pray. Now that kind of threw me for a loop. You've got to do these things so that you may pray. Be alert and of sober mind because this is serious business. I wait for the Lord like a watchman. But he, Jesus gave us a model of praying in the Lord's Prayer. And there's also a great model for prayer in John 17. If you haven't read that, uh, I encourage you to read it. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And it's, it's really helpful. In, I, I found it helpful in kind of structuring my prayer life, which I try to do every morning. But Peter is creating a sense of urgency here because... His readers know that Christ is going to be coming fairly soon. And he's kind of sounding the alarm of like all hands on deck. Let's get with the program. 
And then immediately he states the most important priority for these home churches. Remember, these churches in Asia Minor were just meeting in people's houses. So he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now read the commentaries on that passage, and you'll be totally confused. William Barclay, who's one of my favorites, uh, wrote the Barclay layman's commentary. And he gives three different interpretations of what that means about covering a multitude of sins. But I think it's fairly clear to me, at least. We know that Jesus and uh, that God covers our sins. He forgives us, and then he covers them and removes our, our transgressions from us. And because of that, we are to love one another greatly because of that. Above all, love each other deeply, the passage says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. As Christ has forgiven us, so we should forgive one another. And then in verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that he puts that emphasis on it. And that may not seem like a big deal to us today, but, because, but in the early church, it was really important. You got, you know, you got all these missionaries, Peter, James, John, Paul, running around, going from place to place, and there was no Motel 6 where they keep the lights on for you, so they had to stay somewhere. And so these early churches were very, very hospitable in uh, inviting them in and keeping them and helping on them on their journey and feeding them and helping them... Uh, get people pulled together. Uh, I, and I think that whole idea about offering hospitality to one another is somewhat difficult for some people uh, to do. I, I know many Christians have lots of excuses as to why it would be such an imposition for them to like host a missionary or participate in dinners for eight or get a group of new members together, or form a Bible study group. Those are all hospitable things to do. The small groups are so critical to the life of the church. And the more small group activity we have where we get people together, affinity groups, if you will, it really is helpful for our growth as a community of faith. And then we read in Hebrews, Paul wrote, do not forget to entertain strangers. This is King James Version because I like it the best. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for thereby some people have entertained angels unawares. That's cool. <laughs> that is so cool. Uh, if you see other people as possibly angels, now some people, it's hard to imagine that, but if you see other people possibly angels, you're entertaining people unaware. Angels unawares. So this leads us to the key verse of this give and serve without, reverse, without reserve, which is verse 10 and 11. In verse 10 it says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards uh, in, of God's grace in its various forms. So since this letter was written to Christians, and it's in the past tense, and it's singular, there are some commentators that say, that it's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just talking about spiritual gifts. But first of all, 
you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you receive that gift, then you receive your spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts are not necessarily talents or interests you have or hobbies, that kind of thing. There are several lists for spiritual gifts. And many of you, I know, have been through the spiritual gifts inventory process. If you haven't, do it. It's really helpful to discover what your spiritual gifts are. There's 80 questions. You answer those questions. Then you put them on a chart, and it flows out, and it kicks out the top three spiritual gifts that you have based upon your answers to the question. And we have them here. Deb can probably get them for you. Um, and it's, it's great. I love that whole thing. When we were members of Highland Park Presbyterian Church in Dallas, new members were required to go through the spiritual gifts process. And it was a condition of membership. And it was a great experience to know, going in the door, what your spiritual gifts are and where you can plug in very quickly to the life of church. And particularly for new members and old members who have forgot what their spiritual gifts are, it's important to do. Um, so as they have received the Holy Spirit, the spiritual gifts are then given to serve others. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts. So here they are. Leadership, administration, teaching, knowledge, wisdom, prophecy, discernment, exhortation, shepherding, faith, evangelism, apostleship, service, mercy, giving, and hospitality. That's quite a list. You ought to be able to do at least three of those things. It doesn't make any difference who you are. And spiritual gifts are footprints, your footprints and your fingerprints of service to God that you and I can leave to our family and friends, our church, and the world, certainly our community. God has given us these unique gifts to serve him so that you and I will make an everlasting impact upon the kingdom. Bring him into your life in order that you may serve others. Ed Stetzer, who is a currently visiting professor of research and missiology at Trinity Divinity School and former director of LifeWay Research, I heard a, a, a speech by him online a, a couple of months, it was actually a sermon, online a couple of months ago. And this guy is an expert on collecting data from churches and interpreting what it means in the life of the church. And this statistic shocked me, frankly. He said only 30% of self-professed Christians use their spiritual gifts. 70% do not. And my question is, of the 70%, how many don't even know what their spiritual gifts are? So discovering your spiritual gift, we talk about stewardship, but it's time, talent, treasure. Talent is your spiritual gifts. And a focus on that, a good stewardship sermon is remiss if it only talks about, you know, we got enough money, we got plenty of money, that's the good news. The bad news, it's in your wallet. Uh, <laughs> so I think that, that, that quote, is, uh, that information is very helpful. But amazingly, I thought, okay, uh, Tommy, wherever he is, over here, Tommy sent out a letter, he's the stewardship chair this year, and he sent out a letter that says we have 300 giving units, and last year, 
of giving, giving units is if you're an individual or a couple or a whole family. That's one giving unit per each of those. Of the 300 giving units, 92 pledged. Interestingly enough, that's 30.6%. Now, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir when I throw that out there because most of you who are here are the faithful who do pledge and who do give. But I pray that 100% of you will pledge for this coming year. It's a critical time. We talk in ECO all the time about being a flourishing church. And we, if we're going to be flourishing, we need the resources to do it. Covenant partners are co-laborers. We used to call ourselves lay members. Well, lay members are people that just lay around. <laughs> Covenant partners are co-laborers. And you provide loving support and ministry to your fellow covenant partners to assure that our staff are honored and recognized and compensated and rewarded appropriately. We give in order to maintain this beautiful, underutilized campus that we have. And we give to serve and, and support our local, national, and international missions. We tithe as a congregation to do that. 10% of what we raise, if you will, goes to our missions. And it's very critical, in my opinion at least, that we maintain that. So, then we go to verse 11. Peter writes, there's three sections to verse 11. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. So God empowers us to speak and heed his sacred word. And critically important is that we are consistently remi reminded that when we speak the word of God, we are not giving our opinion about something. Uh, it's, it's God's word that we're to be interpreting. I'm standing up here today. I hope I'm not giving you my opinions. I'm trying to communicate with you the word of God, the sacred uh, word that God has given to us. And I, I really get hung up on things like um, prosperity gospel and, and all these kind of labels we put on different kinds of churches and preaching because we're to preach the word of God. That's it, pure and simple. So that's the first thing. And then if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. All of us are called to ministry, not just the hired guns, and we should never doubt our abilities or potential. Remember the words of Paul to the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. It goes on from there. But it's because of his power at work within us that we are able to do these things so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. That's how he ends this section. So that, that those two words jumped out at me. The ultimate outcome that should always be before us is this, that God gives us gifts, gifts to bring him glory so that he may be praised through Jesus Christ and so that we always remember in all that we do and say that we are co-laborers in his church, so that praise may be to Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory and honor and power forever and ever. And I pray, with all this in your heart and mind, God will guide your pledging, tithing, giving of time, talent, and treasure during not only during the season of stewardship and Thanksgiving and Christmas, but for this whole coming year. It's between you and God. It's urgent, it's important, and it's eternal. So I implore you, let's make it happen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.